this morning as the deacons continue to collect the offering. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find a chairback Bible that should be in front of you nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 916 as we want to study the first 25 verses in Acts chapter 8. So let me read them for us and I pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin together. So listen now as God does speak to you through his perfect word. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that Nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our great God and Father of grace and mercy, Uh, tender love and compassion and kindness, we do come to you this morning knowing that your word is our life, that it's through your word that you bring to us the good news of your son Jesus Christ, 
knowing that it's only in his name that we find forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so we ask that by the preaching of your word this morning, you would raise our gaze to where Jesus Christ is, seated at your right hand, and that we might look upon him, finding life. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. You may be seated. For quite a few years now, one of my hobby horses of sorts to study has been the American space race of the 1960s. And so I was uh, rather excited a couple of weeks ago and our oldest son, Hudson, came to tell me that in his history class, he was studying the American space race. So I immediately thought about all these books that we could pass his way, if nothing else, just to get a sense of uh, the the competition, but also the incredible invention that belonged to that season of time. And then we finally settled on this documentary that was released uh, a couple of years ago called Apollo 11. It's a documentary that just takes original footage from that time period to tell the story of man's first landing on the moon. But it's not a normal documentary by those typical conventions of the genre because it doesn't have any narration. It doesn't have any explanations, so we sat down, the six kids, one night last week and wanted to show them man's first trip to the moon. But of course, for the younger ones, there wasn't explanation nor narration, so it was hard for them to exactly grasp the magnitude of what they were watching. So we got to that point of Apollo 11's launch at Cape Canaveral, and we told the kids to try to get a sense of dimension, the size of this Saturn V rocket as it ignited and flames engulfed it. We said, there goes one million pounds of fuel required to get it 120 miles above the Earth's surface. And then there's going to be another stage and it's going to slingshot around the Earth to pull out more speed. Then another ignition is going to take it all the way to the moon. And the only reason I tell you that is because what we see in Acts chapter 8 is the church of Jesus Christ on the launch pad that is Jerusalem. And it's going to now, in this text, and throughout the rest of the book, it's going to, in stages, find these ignition points that find it hurtling ever farther into the ends of the earth that Christ might be proclaimed in all nations. Because if you have had eyes to see, by this point in the narrative, you might have noticed in the first seven chapters of the book, so basically the first quarter of the book, uh, the church of Jesus Christ there in that first century, it's only been in Jerusalem. And the reason it's important to recognize that is because you might remember, what did Jesus say in his final charter and commission to his church? But you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And so what we're going to see is what exactly it takes sometimes for the Lord to propel his church forward out of their own little Jerusalem, that they might be faithful to the commission and the charter that uh, Jesus Christ has given to them. For I imagine it's quite true that many local churches today might live as though they were only ministering in this tiny little Jerusalem that is their community. And it's true that God has placed us where we are today in Collin County for a precise reason, that we might share the good news of the Savior, shine as lights in this dark world. But when a church's mission is so narrowly focused on one small location, it's missed something of Christ's intent for what the gospel would do in a people and through a people. So our theme today in our 25 verses is when the gospel spreads. And I want to show you in our text two parts 
How first of all, it spreads despite persecution. And then in the bulk of our text, it's, it's spreading through preaching. And then we'll think about some more about the consequences when we get to the end of our time. But first, what we're finding out as the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem to where Jesus said it must go, that it's spreading despite persecution. For notice again, verse 1. We're simply told, Luke tells us, Saul approved of his execution. Uh, kids, do you remember who was executed last week at the end of chapter 7? It was this powerful preacher, one of the first deacons, this man named Stephen. They had been preaching powerfully uh, what Jesus Christ has given us in the gospel, but also what Jesus taught about the temple and the law. And so it upset these people called the freedmen, this kind of cult of, or sect of formerly enslaved Jews now made free in the Roman Empire, and they set up this sham trial, brought in false witnesses, uh, convicted him, and it was a conviction of blasphemy that meant he must die, and so it was there at the end of chapter 7 that they begin to pelt him with stones. He, he's beaten into a, a bloody pulp, and we were told, weren't we, if you glance back up to verse 58 of chapter 7, that as they are wanting to sling stones at this man, as they're wanting to crush him under their weight, uh, they're laying down their garments at the feet of a man named Saul, laying down their garments so their aim might be more direct as they hurl forth their judgment upon Stephen. And so we find out that Paul approved of this execution. The language there of approved is actually, it communicates something like hearty consent, almost gleeful delight in what he was observing there. And so while in verse 2 you get friends of Stephen that take him and bury him and mourn over him, uh, what Saul begins to do is continue to persecute the church, become perhaps a primary opponent of Christ's church. Now some of you might know the name from almost 100 years ago now, a name that was one of those terrifying names in Nazi Germany, the name of Adolf Eichmann. It was Adolf Eichmann that devised what he would euphemistically call the final solution to the Jewish question. And it was a final solution that resulted in no small number of houses getting knocks in the middle of the night, or perhaps better said, getting slammed open in the middle of the night, that opponents of the Nazi regime would be pulled out and taken off to concentration camps. And in quite a strikingly similar way, Saul is enacting his final solution to the Christian problem. You see that in verse 3? He was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Perhaps you can imagine the terror and the ordinary agony that would have marked the Christian church at this time in the first century, wondering if their door would get thrown open at some point during the day or some point during the night. And there would be a silhouette of this man named Saul standing in condemnation, what he thought was holy religious zeal to take off these blasphemers to prison. But the Lord spreads his gospel despite persecution. And sometimes he spreads it because of the persecution. You see the end of verse 1. There on that day Stephen was executed. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Yeah, what you see in, in the book of Acts, it's almost in real time as a historical book, is, is Christ's promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Because what you see over and over is Satan has a strategy that is meant to destroy the church. And what God in his sovereign power does, he, he superintends the actions of all mankind in such a way to bring about what? His purpose. His plan. And so what Saul thought was going to destroy the church actually only helps the church be faithful to Christ's commission, that they take the gospel into places like Judea and Samaria. Maybe you know your book of Revelation well enough that it almost shares a similar story as it's got this repeated chorus of, here then is a call for endurance, this promised victory that belongs to Christ's saints. And Acts is a lot of times showing us a story that says, here then is a call to endurance. And you'll see again, we're told about the scattering nature of this persecution, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Scatter, it's, it's the same word that's used in the parable of the sower. It's as though God in his divine sovereignty is like the divine sower above, and he's scattering his people out to all nations that they might preach the word. And why it's important here to notice is it's not the apostles or someone like Stephen preaching the word in verse 4. That's the only people that have preached by this point in Acts. It seems to be telling us just ordinary Christians going to wherever they scatter to share the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And every single Sunday, we gather, don't we, on the Lord's Day morning. We gather together to worship the Lord, and then in the benediction, the divine commission of Jesus Christ, what does he do but scatter us again to different neighborhoods, communities, schools, workplaces, teams, locations, where he does intend for ordinary people like you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you found yourself scattered off to your place of work or place of rest and thought, who can I speak of Christ to this week? Well, it spreads despite persecution, and primarily in our text, we're going to see it spreads through preaching. Because you see this dominant note. Look at verse 5. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word of the Lord. Notice verse Five again, now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Skip down to verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news. And then you get to the end of our text, verse 25, that these men, when they were on their way back to Jerusalem, they went out preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It was at the turn of the 20th century that perhaps the most prestigious set of lectures on preaching you could give, or known as the Lyman Beecher Lectures at Yale University. And in 1907, they invited a Scottish theologian by the name of P.T. Forsyth to come over and talk about preaching at the Beecher Lectures. And P.T. Forsyth began his first lecture by simply saying this, it is perhaps an overbold beginning, but I will venture to say that with its preaching, Christianity rises and falls. And it's no overbold beginning if you've read your Bible well. Because how does the gospel ordinarily go forth to the ends of the earth? But through Christ's commissioned servants. We see it so often in the book of Acts that it's those that he has appointed for the work of preaching. That are the ones that spread the gospel. But not just them. It's, it's as ordinary people gather and scatter to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that Philip, this man who was also one of those first deacons goes about the work of preaching in verse 5. That, that's not very surprising. Perhaps it's more surprising, though, where he goes. Because you'll look again what we're told 
in verse 5. He went down to the city. We don't know which one. But he goes to Samaria. Now, students, I wonder if you know anything about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans at this time in the first century. You really don't need to know that much, although there's a lot more that you could know. All you really need to know is that Jews thought Samaritans were filthy half-breeds in race and religion. And that is in no way too strong to say it that way. But here goes Philip to precisely where Jesus said he must go. To the place of filthy half-breeds in race and religion. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see he stirs the whole city. Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. These signs often accompanying the gospel in the book of Acts. You'll see in verse 7, signs of healing, signs of exorcism. These people in Samaria, whatever the city was. It's all astir with this Jesus Christ proclaimed by Philip. And that general sense of Philip's ministry now leads to verse 9 through the end of our text. With a very specific part of Philip's ministry as it relates to this one man named Simon. Some of you might know that it was just a few years ago that there was this seemed to be relatively popular musical that was called The Greatest Showman based on the life of of P.T. Barnum who was the man that created the greatest show on earth. And what our text tells us is this man named Simon Magus was something like the greatest showman in Samaria. If we look at what we're told in verse 9 through 11, this man Simon previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They paid attention to him, all of them from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is God's great power. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic And if you told a first century Jew that Philip was going to go into Samaria and he was going to find a people captive to a spiritist charlatan named Simon, an ordinary Jew would be like, "Eh, that seems about right. But here comes Philip taking all the attention that was previously given to Simon. And actually Simon himself, he is wrapped up in all the spiritual excitement, isn't he? Because you see verse 12 and 13 tell us that Philip preached the good news about the kingdom and Jesus Christ, and people were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed, after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It's right to think of this text as something of a sovereign, spiritual, supernatural revival falling upon Samaria. And if you know anything about revival... In church history, it often comes with enthusiastic excess, or enthusiastic excess accompanies it. That's why in the 18th century, when the Great Awakening was causing such a stir in New England, a man named Jonathan Edwards, who was the pastor of a church in Northampton, he wrote one of his classic works, I believe it was in 1741. It was simply called, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of a Spirit of God. And what he was trying to put forth in that book is that there are a number of marks that people often associate as proofs of genuine Christianity, 
But in reality, they aren't. There are these other marks that are proofs of genuine Christianity. Because Simon here, in the midst of this Sumerian revival, it's, it's the same kind of idea. Because you see what are distinguishing marks in Simon's life in verse 13 is he believed and was baptized. But the text is going to tell us he ultimately doesn't believe. In fact, church history tells us he becomes the main propagator of the Gnostic heresy in that time and place. So, you must believe to come to Jesus Christ, right? Romans tells us that everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. But mere mental assent to the truth of Jesus Christ isn't sufficient because doesn't James tell us that even the demons believe? And they shudder. But he's baptized too. You must be baptized. Receive this sign of God's forgiveness of sin, the poured out spirit. Uh, But I'm sure you don't need me to tell you how many people believe and are baptized and actually aren't converted. I wonder if you could be in here today and somewhat like Simon. You've professed belief. You maybe have been baptized. Yet, in the reality of the situation... There isn't a truly converted heart that's been made new. And we see that because the apostles come down, verse 14 to 17. This apostolic commission, bringing with them their apostolic ministry. And Simon gets so excited, amazed by what he sees. Notice what he says and even asks for in verse 18 and 19. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's here that we actually get the origin of the word simony, which is just purchasing religious power or forgiveness of sins with money. And Simon earns perhaps one of the strongest apostolic abominations that you'll ever find in Scripture. Scholars would tell you in verse 20 that the language that Peter uses is almost profane in its tone, but such is the danger of what Simon has just asked for. Because you see what Peter says, verse 20 and following, may silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter because your heart is not right. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and iniquity. So why is it that Peter so earnestly and forcefully abominates Simon's request? What has Simon said? Let me buy God's blessing. And it's surely one of the severest strikes against God's free grace in Jesus Christ to think you can buy anything from God. So you might be like Simon in here today. Perhaps you have believed and perhaps you've been baptized, but you're not truly converted. But you might also be like Simon. I think you can buy God's blessing. You might not have ever come and said, well, can I actually buy it with a check, with cashing in stock? But do you know how easy it is to say, well, let me buy it with all my good deeds. Let me buy it with my diligent service. Let me buy it with my sacrificial tithing. Let me buy it with my earnest activity. But the good news of the gospel 
This gospel preached by Philip and the apostles and those who are scattered throughout Samaria. It's the good news that you can't buy salvation. But Jesus Christ, he bought it for sinners like you and me. Because Jesus Christ alone has the payment required to bring salvation to sinners like you and me. His precious, perfect blood spilled at the cursed cross of, of Calvary. That's the only payment that can wash away your sin. Why would you ever try to, to buy it with anything when it's freely given? So when someone comes and says, let me buy God's blessing, surely an apostle would abominate such a request because it's nothing more, isn't it, than the very unraveling of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. So Peter has poured out these threats, these warnings, urging Simon to pray for his own soul. And look at what Simon responds in verse 24 with, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, he's not taking, is he, personal responsibility for himself. It's a text that warns us, doesn't it, that there are no spiritual sponsors in the Christian faith. That you, Simon, must turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, why don't you do that for me? I pray for God's blessing on my life. I wonder if you're in here today and Perhaps in ways you haven't realized before, you're looking to someone else to save your soul. When in reality, the prayer is to come from your own very heart. It's a gospel that spread forth on the preaching of Jesus Christ amidst persecution upon Jesus Christ's church. One of the many delights of being a parent is watching you know, children mature before your very eyes, and some of you are in this state right now. Others of you perhaps can remember this time in, in years past when uh, children are learning what we might just simply call cause and effect in life. You know, you can go with a little four-year-old to a pond, and they lift up a, a rock and say, Daddy, what happens to the rock if I throw it in the water? I say, well, throw it in the water and let's see. You can walk along a creek and say, Daddy, what happens if we see a snake? They say, well, we must stomp it on its head as Jesus Christ will crush the serpent. <laughs> or like yesterday, I was with the kids helping my grandparents move from uh, one place to another down in Dallas. And uh, we had put a freezer in the back of the truck. And one of the children, not surprisingly, said, but Daddy, what happens if the truck, or, I'm sorry, the freezer falls out of the truck? And you just simply say, bad things, son. <laughs> bad things. And what we, of course, see in Acts, don't we? When the gospel spreads, there's a rippling effect. There are consequences. There are causes and effects. It spreads. How does it? Well, despite persecution and through preaching. But what I want to do as we bring the text home here at the very end is answer that question of, according to this text, what is that basic pattern of what happens when the gospel spreads? Well, three meditations here at the end. Number one. The gospel brings a change of perspective, a change of perspective towards others. Because you see, if you glance back to verse 14 through 17, what's been called the Samaritan Pentecost, this apostolic commission of Peter and John, they come down, notice verse 15, and, and prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only believed, I'm sorry, only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. 
It's a time lapse in ordinary work of God in salvation that has confused people throughout the centuries because isn't it ordinarily true in Scripture that someone believes on Jesus Christ and it's then the Spirit is poured out? But here you have this unexpected lapse in time, don't you? The Samaritans believing, being baptized, and then only when the apostles arrive, however much time later, it's then they receive the Holy Spirit. And although that's a text that has become something of a proof text for second blessing type teaching in various churches in the Western speaking world, what it's simply telling us is a pattern that belongs to Acts. As the gospel begins to spread into new places where it's never been before, well, what tends to happen is this almost intentional time lapse, a uniqueness that belongs to Acts alone, uh, for God to help his people understand that what he is doing is gathering in the nations. Because if you know anything about the Samaritans' religious history, if it was, if it was true that it didn't happen in this way, uh, it would probably be ordinary that just as it had belonged to the Samaritans' religious life in previous centuries, they would have set something up as a rival church, a church rivaling the church in Jerusalem. So as the apostles come, and as it's only when the apostles lay their hands and the Spirit is poured out upon the Samaritans, what is that showing, not only to the Samaritans, but also to Jewish people? That Samaritans, too, are part of the one holy apostolic church. And perhaps it's striking to you, like it was striking to me this week, to think about John being Peter's companion in this apostolic commission. It's in Luke chapter 9 that John heard that a Samaritan village had rejected Jesus Christ. And he said, Lord, let me call down fire from heaven to consume them all. And it's however long later. He's back in Samaria. And what's he doing? Calling down fire from heaven. But it's not the fire of condemnation. It's the fire of confirmation because he realizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it belongs to all people. No matter their tribe, no matter their tongue, no matter their language. The gospel changes your perspective on others for sure. Secondly, the gospel has power over your attention. You notice verse 6 and verse 10. Luke is intentionally telling us that these people in verse 10 and 11 that paid attention to the spiritist Simon the magician. Now according to verse 6, with one accord are paying attention to the gospel declared by Philip. And isn't that the ordinary way that the gospel works in a person's life? That Jesus Christ is proclaimed, that Jesus Christ is trusted, that Jesus Christ is cherished. And that which used to captivate your attention... That which used to be your fixation, well, it just seems to recede, doesn't it? In light of the glory and the majesty and the, and the beauty of Jesus Christ, I wonder if some of you can think back on something perhaps in previous years, perhaps even just in previous months, that now your interest in it, a worldly sinful thing, has receded because so earnest and sincere is your paying attention to Jesus Christ. The gospel has power to change our perspective on others, the power to change and captivate our attention. And thirdly and finally, uh, we must see according to this text that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our supreme pleasure. Or said differently, the gospel that brings us Jesus Christ is our supreme pleasure. Notice verse 8. So there was much joy in the city. You want to know what happens when the gospel spreads? People are joyful in Jesus. Citywide joy in Jesus. 
Not just a single individual heart joyful in Jesus, but something like this, an entire gathered group of people joyful in Jesus. Because he, of course, is the supreme pleasure. So how then does the gospel spread? Well, despite persecution, it spreads through preaching. What happens when the gospel spreads? Well, it changes our perspective on others, bringing unity and harmony. It has power over our attention, what fixates our mind. And surely it brings us Jesus Christ, who must be our supreme pleasure. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would stir within us by your spirit a childlike faith and sincere belief in you, a faith that makes us right before you only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you have given to us. And may his righteousness be our consistent joy. Give us delight in him this day. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand together as we want to respond to God's word and Ready our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning together as we look in our bulletins to our hymn of response and sing, Behold the Lamb.